welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. Has some exciting news right off the bat. We just launched our all-new website, www.painless.network is where we're at. Post and view jobs. Simply connect and connect directly with other members to painlessly discuss and solve problems, find solutions, find people, vendors, ideas, contacts, all at painless.network. Just create a profile. It's free. Get there today. Help take the pain out of networking. It's free. Did I say free? Painless.network today. Uh, idea behind the Painless Podcast is pretty simple. Connect with good human beings in and around sports and event marketing. Not just sound bites, but actual conversations with smart, interesting, and generous people who share with us how and why they've reached the success they've had and how and why networking and mentoring have helped shape their careers. We'll have more on today's Painless Podcast, Jason Coyle, in one sec. But first, we have to give a big shout-out, big thanks to our sponsor, Making Today's Pod Possible, NCSA, Next College Student-Athlete. They're Chicago-based, and they are the world's largest and most successful collegiate athletic recruiting network. The NCASA team of 600-plus former college coaches and athletes have helped tens of thousands of college-bound student-athletes connect with college coaches every single year. The tech company with a sports mindset, NCSA, has also been recognized for culture initiatives, benefits, and workplace environment, winning multiple awards like Fortune's 50 Best Companies to Work For and Chicago Magazine's Best and Brightest Companies to Work For. You're interested in joining the team, helping student-athletes connect with college coaches and opportunities? Check out Painless Pod number 15 with NCSA's president, Lisa Strassman, for her first take on NCAA's work and culture. And then get the heck over to NCSA Careers page at www.ncsasports.org. All right. Today's Painless Pod guest is Jason Coyle, CEO of Stadium and the co-founder of 120 Sports in, based in uh, Chicago's West Loop. We'll find out how a Harvard Law grad working for a prestigious law firm ends up working in sports media. What... Uh, what has Jason learned from Bulls and Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf? How does Stadium hope to carve its place as the fifth major 24-7 sports network? What does Teddy Roosevelt talking about falling down have to do with all this? We'll find out all those answers and much more in today's chat. So let's get going here. Recorded September 27th at Stadium's offices. Let's get connected with Jason Coyle. From Chicago's West Loop and the headquarters of Stadium, let's welcome to the Painless Podcast, Jason Coyle. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being here. I uh, just I'd like to typically start with uh, explanation a little bit. What's your current role, uh, title, some of your uh, current responsibilities, uh, what, what you're doing here at Stadium? I'm the CEO of Stadium. I'm responsible for the entire operation from content to distribution, sales, and monetization. And how many folks are currently employed here at Stadium? We have uh, 125 people here. Okay. Maybe what might make sense at this point, too, uh, at the top end, explaining Stadium, is it 
grown out of 120 or that's a, a still part of an arm of stadium? How would you explain that? Because people, particularly in Chicago, are probably familiar with the stadium launch a few years, I mean, sorry, the 120 launch a few years ago. And you're, we'll talk about your role with that. You know, stadium has supplanted 120 Sports, Campus Insiders, and the American Sports Network. So stadium now is a brand new national sports network. Um, fully programmed, linear experience, uh, as well as on demand. Uh, but we we in, in, in encompass the the daily live studio operation of 120 Sports, but also combine um, significant number of events that we acquired through Campus Insiders and the American Sports Network. Okay, and a little bit more background would be the who, who else is involved? You've got multiple partners uh, slash in, in investors, stakeholders in stadium leagues and and uh, pr- uh, media companies. Who all right now are the the main players you work with? Yeah, that's one of the reasons we're so excited about where we are and, and where we're going. It's it's really the collection of our of our owners all aligned in in a long term vision. Um, we have rights holders such as Major League Baseball, Advanced Media, the National Hockey League. PGA Tour as owners, uh, and then media companies such as Silver Chalice, um, Time Inc., really through uh, Sports Illustrated Vehicle, and Sinclair Broadcasting. Sinclair, people would be familiar, especially in, again, and uh, have you number of listeners coming from Chicago, they've recently bought uh, Tribune Company, right? They've been in the news a lot in the yeah. last couple of months. <laughs> Before that, you really, um, you had to you had to really explain quite a bit what, what and who they were. And yeah, which is right. you don't have to do quite so much of that now. So the uh, they have something fifty or so TV stations around the country, and so that is is that part of how much what would you call it, the carriage or something of your live content right now? What they have access to and um, control of is is spectrum. Um, yes, the stations, but after the, the um, conversion to a digital signal, um, there's more spectrum to carry more networks than and, and, and content than just a single station. Oh, right. Like on an, the HD s- signal, for example, you're pulling up digital channel two or something, and that's where a lot of your content can be found. Okay. That's right. So if you t- if you have a digital antenna, you, you, you'll see you've got 70, 80 stations on there, and, and we're, we're being distributed through that digital antenna. Okay. Also, to give an idea of what we say content, we just kind of throw that word out a bunch these days. What kind of content throughout the week? There's studio-type content that you produce here, and what kind of shows are those? And then you're also broadcasting uh, various uh, games, uh, competitions. That's correct. It, I think when you when you watch, you'll see it. it it's, it's very familiar in some respects. It looks the part of a fully programmed national sports network. You can see our ticker running right there. Throughout the day, you'll see a daily live studio element that covers college sports, professional sports, various um, uh, niche programming. We have live events, college football, college basketball. Uh, we've had women's volleyball, um, soccer on uh, on a live basis the last couple of weeks. We have classic games, archival. Uh, and then we also have original um, content. So it all programs together in a, in a 24 by 7 um, program. And I'm manner. just looking up on the screen. Was that the uh, Ryder Cup rebroadcast that I saw up there? So that, we got the President's golf right. Pre- okay, that's exactly President's right. Cup. All right. We try to keep it timely. Yeah, well, that, that's why I was wondering why it was, uh, okay, I, my brain subconscious or something wasn't processing it right. Now let's go back. Uh, let's go back in the time machine, the painless time machine a little bit here, and talk about your background, how you got started in this 
you went to, uh, I saw you went to undergrad at, at Notre Dame, and it was a government and politics uh, as, a, as a major, and you went to law school at, at Harvard. That is not a typical sports uh, content background, I, I would say. Uh, so how, how did you, were you looking that this far ahead, or did you think, oh, I'm going to go into politics, or I'm going to go work for a law firm? I, I never dreamed that I would be in sports media. <laughs> I went to law school to be a lawyer, and I grew up wanting to be a lawyer. And you don't hear many lawyers <laughs> or even ex-lawyers admit that for whatever reason. Uh, but I grew up in a house where um, my mom had gone to law school. My dad was a judge in the military, JAG Corps. Oh, wow. And for a little kid on a uh, grown up on military bases to sit in your dad's courtroom and see him up there um, with a big American flag behind him, it, it was pretty cool. And that's, that, that essentially guided my path. And where, where did you grow up? Uh, a a lot of places. Place yeah, we, of I, Brad, I was born in Fort Lewis and in Tacoma. Then we, we went over to Seoul, South Korea. Uh, for a time then, we were in Colorado Springs, Colorado. At, uh, at Fort Carson. Mm -hmm. And um, then from there, the moving started to get a little old for, <laughs> for the family. And, and um, dad retired and, uh, well, from the service, uh, certainly didn't retire. And then we moved to the Midwest in a little town called Coldwater, Michigan. Okay. And then um, that, is that where you ended up graduating from high school? That's exactly right. Cold, Coldwater Cardinals. Coldwater Cardinals. Shout out. And so <laughs> the, uh, you know, what kind of a role you talked about, you don't, never thought you'd be in sports, sports media and stuff. Were you in sports? Were you, uh, you know, high school being in Michigan, you play hockey or football, basketball, any of those things growing up that, you know, you had some coach shaping you or you, you weren't one of those guys? Oh, they, no, sports. That was... That was essentially everything, and and luckily, I don't know if luckily or if this is the why, but my dad, and mom, that's that was at least part of every single dinner conversation, oh, okay. and we just loved everything about sports. I played from the time I could pick up a ball, um, primarily baseball, basketball, um, even though you wouldn't know it now. Golf. The game, has the game suffered right now? <laughs> too, too busy to bring it, the handicap. Down? It, ha it it started suffering in a significant way uh, the day I picked up a, a, a golf club. But certainly when I, I had my first <laughs> first child about twelve years ago. Uh -huh. So a whole bunch of different sports and participated in that stuff. Like uh, I think it was Mike Gordon when I talked to him called it like a I was a a park district athlete that depending on the time of year I then would go out with my my buddies and play anything right. Was that sitting in the back of your mind that to, to you know, you, you went to work, got your got your degree at Harvard and went to work at Sidley and Austin, a, a great prestigious law firm here in Chicago. But then there's the shift after three years or so to end up at Intersport mm -hmm. agency here. Mm -hmm. How did how did that come about? Was it that Charlie and the guy said, Yeah, hey, we like this guy with his legal background and or you said I'm ready to get the heck out of law. I don't like it after all. What was the impetus for that? It was a, a happy accident, I suppose. I didn't know Charlie at all. He, uh, Intersport was a client of Sidley and Austin. I was working in litigation. I was very fortunate um, to get incredible experience early. I got a federal trial pro bono, so I actually was in court um, um, either took or defended over 100 depositions, was really getting the maximum amount of experience you could ever hope for as a litigator at a big firm. 
And as a, as a result, it was pretty worn out. Uh, I actually do, I really like the, the practice and I love Sidley and, I, and I'm in close contact with a bunch of people there at the t- um, still. Uh, but I just, I, one day on a Saturday, I was working away as, as I typically did and, and one of the partners came in and said, hey, I uh, probably shouldn't be telling you this since you're one of our associates, but I just came across a, an opportunity. A, a firm here in town is looking for a young lawyer to serve as counsel um, and that alone was not interesting to me. I already had a great job in, right. in, in law, but um, they dangled the carrot of being able to work in programming and, and learn the industry. And this is like 98, I think, if that's, I said that's right. right, right? They had done, it's interesting, and I, it's, it, it's, there's not more people to talk about it, but there was the, I remember, Intersport was at the leading edge, I would say, of the phone mobile technology with content on the phone. I think it was Sprint-driven and... Um, did Campus Insiders grow out of that uh, program or was there that, that uh, product? No, that was, uh, it, actually when I got to Intersport, it was television. I do think that they were ahead of the game in, in many different ways because they were producing all sorts of different um, types of content from documentaries to live events and distributing it through the Prime before Fox Sports Net and ESPN primarily. And then yeah, They did a lot of the... Uh, the interviewing and and I think interviewing and editing pieces like they were the local unit for ESPN on was it Roy Firestone show or some that of those kinds of, thing. of things right right like it was okay so there was there wasn't that mobile digital mobile piece yet so you were totally on came in beforehand and were on the front end of that right we um, we really went in a couple of stages first was to develop. Uh, more distribution partners. So we, uh, when I had gotten there, it was primarily ESPN and Fox Sportsnet. And this is not because of me, but over <laughs> over time, we expanded to distributing content on CBS, on NBC, on Fox. We even did the first and only ever live bass fishing special for David <laughs> David Hill at Fox. Uh, and and about I will say five years into it, it, it started to become apparent that it it. It's challenging to be a packager and constantly relying on someone else's network for lead-in or promotion or time period. And so we were looking to build something that, that we could control and that was more of our own platform. And at the same time, we, we had an opportunity to pitch Sprint, who at the time, if you can believe it, basically tied with AT&T and Verizon for subs. Yeah. And they had NASCAR back then. They had a NFL. And so we convinced um, a VP over there by the name of John Burris then became a co-founder of Silver Chalice. We'll get mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, to build Sprint exclusive entertainment, we put together a 20-person dedicated unit to creating sports content in real time, in short form, really for the feature phone, the one-inch by one-inch screen. Yeah. And yeah, that's, a, that's what's amazing about that. <laughs> it dates us both a little bit, mm-hmm. but like... You're thinking of now what you can do with the digital content or t- you know mobile content, and holy cow, it was a really limited, you know, screen on the flip phone or something like that. And <laughs> well, I remember the day of celebration, the wild celebration in our, in our offices when the, when Sprint announced 3G. Yeah, because right. that's right. Yeah, because wow, before that, yeah, oh. it, it it was uh, there was no navigation. It was the old fashioned feature phone, flip phone, um, very choppy. But it led us. Um, to create content specifically for that screen. 
our graphics specifically to be read on that screen. Our, our formats were driven by that, that user yeah. experience. And sure enough, Sprint Exclusive Entertainment was outperforming the NFL network that they were live streaming and ESPN. And so we could see from the data that taking television quality content but creating it exclusively for these users and use cases was absolutely a path to, to another generation of media. So you stayed, what, what other kind of stuff, I guess, that, that might be applicable to what you're doing now, what other things did you work on at days at Intersport? Because you were there for, what was it, almost 10 years? Ten years yeah, right? it was 10 years so, by the time I left. So you had a chance to work on a lot of different stuff. Is there other things that were growing your experience and interest in the digital mobile space? Definitely. We ended up launching something called Celeb TV. That was uh, basically our concept of, uh, it was the first digital network that I really know of. And um, we started with a, uh, we transformed our sales offices into a set. We hired, <laughs> we hired a couple of very senior level producers from Entertainment Tonight. And we started creating 20 to 30, 60 second entertainment hits every single day. And it just took off. And we could see through distribution partners like Google Video, not YouTube yet, yeah. um, Comcast.net. Uh, we were getting tens of millions of views every day. It was, and we were getting great brands to advertise with us, uh, McDonald's, um, uh, Geico. It was, it was really spectacular to see the opportunity to create branded content and, and to find a new user base and create a new experience. And how was the... Um what was the revenue model? I'm kind of curious about. With that, that were you as an agency? Were you pay, you know more paid on a project kind of level, or were you in the venture? I'm sure that that's shaped your vision of how stuff is done now. It was all rev share. Yeah, it, it really we saw it as because remember Intersport, we were syndicating video across the prime networks, sometimes station by station, sometimes market by market. And so for us, this was the same model: sell a, sell a sponsor, distribute to the widest possible audience across different uh, different providers. I was just thinking that you're seeing these numbers of views in the millions, and if you're just at some flat <laughs> flat number, you're going, "Whoa, whoa, wait a minute! This is there's a lot more to be made here, or we we didn't set this up right." So that's right. Um, what was uh, at, at that point then, um, this is now 2008, I believe, that uh, Silver Chalice was, came about. I remember following that and reading a lot about it because we had Jerry Reinsdorf mm -hmm. and, and uh, his involvement, his teams and, and all. And uh, you know, How did that come about? Was, did you have them as a, a client that you had a relationship? Was it a good random funny story, something <laughs> in the middle? How did that happen? Well, it, it, it was... It was semi-random, probably not very funny, but we well, had... No, make something up then. We don't want <laughs> semi-random, not funny on this thing. But. Well, well yeah, Jerry's right hand on the marketing and, and media rights front on, at uh, the Bulls, and then the White Sox is a guy named Brooks Boyer. Sure. Brooks and I lived in Keenan Hall at Notre Dame together. Uh, okay, and Brooks had been pushing Jerry to launch a new business, um, very much in the in the in the general principles of Fenway Sports Group, which had been doing a great job uh, for the Red Sox. Jerry had been a primary force 
behind the development and launch and success of MLB Advanced Media. Yeah, you saw that that just took off and yeah. I had to go, well, you know, we, we need to do something like that. What, what do you think that's, this is, this is off the, kind of off the topic and maybe it's even delicate because MLBAM is, is a partner here now with you, but what was it with their model or their, their focus or some, maybe it was something else that really made MLBAM work? Was it as simple as them just having the control of all the teams or, you know, Anyway, I've got, to, I've got to shut up and stop answering the question for you. But, I mean, they've been, you can't see this as you're listening, but you got one hand up here is what they're doing. And anything else, when, certainly within the leagues, has been, hasn't even sniffed that. What's been the reasons behind the success? Two things that I point to are the alignment of the owners. And I think Jerry was a part of that. Certainly the commissioner was a part of it. But each and every owner had to buy in to the shared vision. Um, to where the the Yankees and the Royals would be very similarly situated, yeah. and that was a that was big long term thinking. And then th- these owners committed to it as a unit to build to build this um, to build out expertise and and to to seed control of of a lot of their own content. The second thing was world class technology that they developed on their own. They hired a guy named Joe Inzarillo, who is still there, CF or um, um, CTO of BAM Tech now, and. They just built an amazing team and leaped ahead years and years of everyone else to develop this world-class streaming technology. And and I think it's those two things that really led the way. Did they, uh, to make that happen, was that um, just good foresight? Was it that they were lucky that they, because all the owners were behind it, they had financial resources to do that? Or, you know, I mean, just looking, I could see some people saying, well, sure, then if you've got that, it's kind of easier to go create the mother of all, um, you know, aggregating sites or something like that, but there's got to be more to it than that. I mean, there had to, there was definitely some of the right vision, but um, it's just it's fascinating to me. Yeah, and, and I want to make sure I, I don't have the inside knowledge. I just have yeah, a, a yeah, yeah. close observer. Um, they, they they had outstanding leadership. Bob Bowman was there from mm-hmm. from inception, and Kenny Gersh and Joe and Din Man and and Ed Weber. They that that senior team has been there the entire time, yeah. and they had the vision not just to become. Uh, to set the bar in terms of streaming, yes, they had some content, but then they had the vision to keep pressing ahead as, as into what has now become BAM Tech by acquiring rights from the NHL, acquiring rights from the tour, um, really building expertise outside of baseball that that led eventually to 120 Sports becoming one of their investments and yeah. properties. It's just interesting to me that all the other leagues and you know baseball frank i mean i'm a big baseball fan but frankly getting a knock of maybe being antiquated or slow or whatever and they're the ones that are have just blown away everybody else with that now we need to put all those guys manfred needs to move them all on to the solve the speed of the game issue then and get that taken care of and then they'll be in great shape right i won't put you on the hot spot and make you answer that silver chalice um role is as a co-founder about nine years with that six years in again reading the numbers right or so 120 came along and what was the genesis uh, you know of that you know i hear some of it maybe from the sprint tv and celeb tv those, those that success that model what else was it that said now is the time to do this we we started at, at silver chalice with um without an absolute vision as to what we wanted to do, other than we realized somewhere in there, there was great opportunity. There was not very much quality in terms of video 
um, made for made for digital. There was not a lot of expertise. There were rights holders um, with rights without any sort of plan, <laughs> uh, without any sure. e- extra capital to put put to work, and without any. They were basically just putting these rights in a in a file cabinet and leaving them there. And so we took about a year um, once we started Silver Chalice of really just consulting and investigating the marketplace for opportunities. And we came to believe that um, our purpose should be to build the next generation of great sports networks in partnership with rights holders, which was critical because we knew this was a long road. We didn't want to license rights and and have the industry develop five years later and have an ESPN or someone else come in and, and buy them out from under us. So in partnership with rights holders, television quality and cleared for all digital platforms, whether they existed at the time or came to exist, because I mean, this was still pre-iPhone. So it was a very long yeah. vision as to what we were trying to do. It had to be a blessing, really, with, this is my assumption, it had to be a blessing with a guy like Jerry Reinsdorf. A, deep pockets certainly help, and, and his patience, but also being able to see the bigger vision. To me, that's my take on it, that it wasn't just somebody that's coming in and, you know, if you're not turning that profit in the first six months or 90 days or, you know, whatever kind of a thing, okay, this isn't working, we're, we're moving on. And so to allow you to formulate the right plan, allow you to make some shifts as you go, um, has to have been uh, helpful. And I'm sure he's not just sitting there patting you on the back and saying, hey, everybody's a winner. There, I'm sure there's some tough conversations, but, uh, you know, is that a... Um, a good outsider's view of how things have have gone with it? Well, he just has such an uncanny ability to have a general sense of what's going to happen before anyone else does. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he bought the Bulls um, for a pretty nice price, bought the White Sox for a very nice yeah. price. Yeah. Uh, he was early on the, on the regional sports network model. He was right in the middle of ML BAM. Um, and he's got a lot more successes than I could ever <laughs> list here. But he just has a sense of what comes next. And um, he's just, he's a remarkable decision maker. And, and so I, I, we've been very, very fortunate. Nothing would have happened without him. Going through the 120 experience and now with, with pivoting, what kind of stuff, for lack of a better word, did you learn through that Process well thought of in terms of product, but I would also say, frankly, it didn't you know set the world on fire. Maybe you you look at it differently. We should talk about that. But what have you learned from that? What's the tweaking that we need to be doing here? And I'm guessing the stadium is kind of that answer. What kind of stuff? The speed bumps because it's never smooth, totally smooth sailing. What kind of stuff have you had to work through and challenges that you've maybe tried to pivot into success stories? Yeah, well, I think over the course of six, seven, eight years with Silver Chalice, we stepped every single morning into onto a playing field that was a little bit different than the day before. <laughs> the invention of the iPhone, then the iPad, um, then then all these over the top players. I mean, like I said, YouTube. <laughs> so for us, we we knew directionally where we wanted to go and what we needed to be. Um, and then it was just course correcting as we went. And, and really about a year ago, it became clear to us that even though so much of digital is, um, is on demand and personalized, our distribution partners, the next generation, you know, the Comcasts of, of the digital age, um, we're looking for a, 
for a linear experience, a programmed linear experience. And it seems counterintuitive um, when everything is, is, um, is, is pulled apart and, and made available on demand. There still was a demand for something that was fully programmed. Let's see what's on now. Let's see what's on today. And when we looked at 120, and we had Campus Insiders as a Silver Chalice asset as well, they were perfect complements. 120 Sports, great daily studio programming, great advertiser support, some classic games, really great distribution partners like MSN. Just for instance, an yeah. uh, uh, editor's choice um, iOS app and, and uh, great, great reviews. So we had tons going for us, tons of credibility with, I think, our uh, rights partners, with audiences and distribution partners. But it didn't have the horsepower to become a 24-7 fully programmed network. Um, didn't have, a, for instance, live events. And just launching a news and information 24-7 seemed seemed incomplete. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, we had Campus Insiders, 3,000 live events, and came to find uh, American Sports Network, several hundred additional live events, perfect complements. So combine the daily live studio of 120 Sports and the great relationships and credibility that Campus Insiders had, and now you have the ingredients to build something that I, I would challenge you to put Stadium on against some of the other national networks and, and, and just look at the rights and look at the actual programming that comes on, look, see what it looks like, and, and um, it, it, it stacks up pretty well, I would think. Well, I think that one of the things I would say, too, is that it's, if people talk about, oh, there's a, you know, a million uh, different channels out there on the TV using air quotes now because it's your device or your laptop or tablet or whatever streaming but there's not really that are like you said I guess that's it that that fully programmed piece because it's to be at that level it's just it's so expensive I talked to a few weeks ago with Jeff Urban from Whistle Sports and I think that that's probably you know they saw that that it was such an investment that would go in for them to become a full-on channel so they shifted to being in social space and doing very well with it in front of tens of millions of, of, of people. So that's where the, I would say, it looks like the split kind of occurred. The difference between you and, and them, am I assessing that? Is that fair to say? I think it's, it's partially fair to say. They certainly have staked out a, uh, a great position in social media. And from what I can see, it's very much short form, um, very much... Um, kind of rapid fire and, and I think really good stuff. And we want to go in a, in a, in a position where we are legitimately the fifth sports network yeah. that, that's out there. And that um, rather than just being a Me Too with uh, ESPNs and FS1, NBC Sports Network and CBS Sports Network, um, we can go to where the audience clearly is going. And, and to bring that quality um, and that platform, going back to Intersport, we wanted to own our platform rather than being dependent okay. on someone else's constantly asking permission and asking for um, cooperation. This is now our platform that we can program and we can distribute where we want. Along those lines, then, becoming a fifth sports network, what what is the next six months to 12 months look like for Stadia? How are you as Stadium? What, what's the plan to help gain the recognition, grow that viewership, uh, gain that legitimacy coming over the next, you know, when we look at you, uh, when we sit down and do this interview, revisit in a year from now. We have a, an amazing opportunity just by virtue of how we've how we've cleared our rights and, and how aligned our partners are, where we're 
we're going to places where the others just aren't, first and, and um, perhaps foremost, but first, certainly. And we already launched in 40% of the country on television. Um, and again, these are, um, these are viewers watching through digital antennas. There are 30 million households in the country with digital antenna. And then we are also, by virtue of our rights, able to, through retransmission, end up in, in cable systems by market as well. And so we're, we're going first to, to these antenna households where they don't have a national sports network. So we're competing really against oh, okay. yeah. no one else. No, that makes a lot of, okay. I did not think of that. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And, and when you see the investment going into these, these, um, these DigiNets, as, as uh-huh. some would call them, this, there's a lot of Hollywood money going in. Um, this is, there's some very sophisticated money and sophisticated um, content being brought to, these, um, to this new platform. Then in addition, we have we launched the first ever 24-7 network on Twitter, for instance. Um, we launched a package of games exclusively with Facebook. Um, we're going places where the other networks can't go and, mm-hmm. and probably aren't going to go anytime soon. So that alone gives us an advantage to talk with audiences that either don't have uh, these other networks or at that moment, don't have access to those networks. And can you tell us a little bit about the Facebook example? How much was uh, that coming from your end? You, you all sitting around saying, hey, what's the way we can you know, outflank these guys? What's a great partner to be with? Is it Facebook came to you guys? Is it one of your, your partners, investors actually, you know, hey, this makes a lot of sense. We should bring you guys together. I'm a little curious if, if you can share a little bit of how that, comes about because I'm sure a lot of people are like, damn, I'd love to be working with Facebook too, and curious of how it, how that happened. Well, since we've launched um, the business, we've made it our business to create great relationships with everyone who's a viable distribution partner um, out there. And um, in this case, and again, you see that we're, we're, we're live with our 24-7 on Twitter, um, and we have the Facebook a relationship among, among many others. So we're playing the long game with all of these folks. And as their strategies develop, or they're able to at least, uh, maybe they were developed previously, and likely they were, but as they were able to share um, their their direction and their philosophies on what would work on their respective platforms, we're there um, in conversations with them, um, brainstorming, I'm not necessarily pitching, but constantly letting them know the opportunities that we have, whether it's studio programming, short form, long form, games. And the conversation was a pretty natural evolution of the conversations we'd been having with them for a number of years. And here's, I don't know if this would have anything to do with it or not. How you're going back to your days as the, uh, the, jag, the, the jag days, were, you know, does that stuff come in handy a lot? Does, does the the thinking like a lawyer or reading things like a lawyer, or have you tried to ditch that actually, or does that actually come in handy in thinking of how to put deals together or how to make partnerships happen? Yeah, I, I find that it it comes into work every single day, and the thing that I've always the only thing in I've, a good way is it. It, it is okay. a good way. Yeah, I'm no longer a registered lawyer even, so I, I have I have. There, there's no so looking now you back. Can speak freely. You're not still you're uh, fighting to keep your bar. There, there are tons of attorneys in the sports business. Obviously, most of them came from a deal side. Mm-hmm. They're corporate attorneys, yeah. and they're brilliant in what they do. I didn't. I was a litigator, right. and so that doesn't apply as neatly to the sports space. 
But for me, every time I sit down, um, way back um, when, when we were trying to develop shows for Intersport and we're trying to write a one-sheeter, we're trying to construct a segment, yeah. just the way that you think about creating persuasive and logical um, arguments or, or presenting any sort of content comes into play. It even comes into play every day when I write a particular email. Um, certainly when we sit down and we, we talk about um, how we want to program a certain day part or, mm-hmm. or show. Do you think, would you consider yourself a creative person? Or do you, or, and, and or do people look at you that, oh, he must, he's not really the creative guy. He's, he's a, you know, the lawyer and he comes from, he's the, the suit in, in this thing. Do you, has that been anything that, that could have hindered you? Or maybe even you come into a meeting and they're not expecting it. They're not expecting you to be the creative one. And it works to your advantage. Is there any you know st- stories like that? Well, it's been almost twenty years of being in this business, um, and 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 leading programming group, and and coming up with the concept of launching particular networks, and, and certainly putting people in place. And and it is true that I very gladly defer in many instances to our amazing production team. And I always will. I, I don't put myself as the lead yeah. content um, person, and I'm not the chief creative officer here by a long shot. But I have my opinions, and I've come to trust them over time, just in terms of um, show ideas or um, you know talent reviews, things like that. Yeah. Well, that's that's why you, you wouldn't have ever made it as an attorney. Then you don't have a big enough ego. <laughs> We've got to be cognizant of time. We've got just a. a just a few minutes left until you've got to, got to run. So I want to talk about, I think there'll be a lot of people looking at your background. That's one of the reasons why I talk about the, the attorney background but, and not thinking you'd be in sports and sports media. What are, what's you know, anything from one major thing or any couple of tips that you know, people ask you, they're, they're, maybe it's somebody that is an attorney and how did you make this change? Or it's somebody from outside or uh, somebody that's in an agency and is like, I'd really like to be more on this side of the business or something. What, what are some common pieces of advice? I'll start with, I'm assuming, as you talked about, being able to write and write persuasively may be the, the biggest. Touch on that and then any kind of other uh, advice or tips that you find you keep going back to to give people uh, a hand. Yeah, you're right about um, about writing, I'll come back to that in a second. I just my my advice and and what I've um, I've implored people to understand before they even try to get into the sports business is don't forget the second word sports business. Mm-hmm. And I think people have a sense, a general sense, they want to get into sports, and I understand that. Believe me, I had no right. no rightful or logical path. That's why I didn't pursue it. <laughs> but you you must first be great at the business part of it and you must have a passion for sports too we actually have had a couple of people end up uh, inside these walls somehow over time without a passion for sports and and obviously that doesn't that doesn't get you home either you got to have a, um, a directed love for, for for both parts of it um, but writing is is a skill that I I think comes into play almost at every part of, of, of our production. Um, whether it whether it's the actual producers writing copy, whether it's um, sales presenting our content and asking for a lot of money, um, whether it's just any of our professionals corresponding with other professionals, you learning to write is an enormous um, advantage, and it's the first flag when something comes across my desk or is an email of grammatical errors or just poor writing. It just it's a it's a it's a full block. 
Right, and that's. I think that that's. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, I've got my opinion on it, and I'm up on the, getting up on the soapbox. But yeah, that no matter what you're doing, writing and practicing writing and and uh, practicing writing again can be used in any way. Whether you're, it's a a dry job, if you will, or a creative job, or a sales job, or you know something in between any of those. So to be able to communicate, make an argument, and do both of those clearly is super helpful. Anything uh, anything else that we did not get to touch on today, and it could be advice, it could be you know just uh, any other kind of stories or anything that you'd you'd have uh, uh, you know you'd want to share with folks listening. Well, the advice. Um I've got a, I kind of glanced left as I was saying that, and I've, I've got the framed Teddy Roosevelt quote over there um, that uh, I don't think I'll read in its entirety, <laughs> but it, it celebrates the people who try and fail, try again, fail, and, and so forth, until perhaps their success, but it's the celebration of those people over the critic standing on the sideline. And I would rather every time be the person in there failing in a lot of cases, but just keeping just keeping ahead. I'd rather be that person in the game and um, subjecting myself to ridicule and failure than being the person on the sideline commenting on that. Well, I cannot follow that up. I think that that's perfect. I'm going to post that with the uh, painless. Uh, podcast description for folks to get the, the full quote, but uh, that's good stuff. So, uh, Jason, I, I know you've got a, uh, to, to run, and so I appreciate all the time that you gave today. I think this was really both interesting and helpful for a lot of folks. So, thank you very much for joining me today on the Painless Podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks very much again to Jason Quayle, and uh, also a shout out and thank you to Mark Mungnos from Stadium for making this happen. Thanks, Mark. And, of course, Jason, for a big chunk of your day. And uh, here's your to-do list, listeners, before you jump on to the next pod. First of all, check out our sponsor, NCSA, by going to ncsasports.org. Scroll down to the box at the bottom, click Careers, find out about joining the world's largest, most successful collegiate athletic recruiting network. Good people, good culture, and they're hiring now. Uh, number two on your to-do list, if you're a runner, maybe you've fired up recently by a Chicago Marathon or you know some folks running in New York in a couple weeks, get on to the pod with Dave Zimmer and Steve Ginsburg from Fleet Feet and Ram Racing, respectively, then a couple episodes ago, F31. Save five bucks to register now for the Hot Chocolate 15K or 5K races. Use that code HCPAINLESS. That's HCPAINLESS at registration. When you go to hotchocolate15k.com, sign up now. Uh, number three, your to-do list. Get to the new www.painless.network site and join today. Create and complete a free profile on our brand new site. Enjoy all the painless benefits. And number four, this is it. You're, this is all. You're less than five items on your to-do list. Come on, you can do this. Uh, subscribe to the Painless Podcast. Check out other past episodes. We talk about Jeff Urban from Whistle Sports on here. Uh, Tab Bamford from La Vida Baseball and Teamworks Media is another one you may find of interest. And, uh, you know, listen to all of them. We've got uh, 33 of them up now, and they're all fantastic. All right. It's late. I need to get out of your ears and give you a break. Until next time, friends, this is Chris Hartwig saying stay connected. <laughs>